0: scripture and then space for you to take notes. So if you're a note taker, people love these. So you can follow along through the whole series as we spend a good portion of this year in the book of Acts and see the expanding church, the beginning of uh, the Christian church. But before we dive into uh, Acts chapter 3 this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time when we can gather together and praise your holy name. When we can gather together around your word and read it and see you in it and how you've moved throughout history and how you have brought us to where we are and how you continue to move. Lord, I just pray for this time that you bring the scripture to life in our hearts and our minds, that we can worship you through this, that we can be changed because of it, that we can always live for you in all that we do. For all these things, in Jesus' name, amen. It's a big question. It actually can be kind of confusing. We come to this book, this Bible, and we start reading it, and we can be confused about how it all fits together. You see some new believers say, hey, where do I start with the Bible? And they open up to the beginning, and they start reading Genesis, and they read about this nation of Israel, and they read about how God has been working in them, and it can seem confusing, can see, seem so separate from us. And we can almost struggle to how do we incorporate and make sense of this whole Bible and how do these many different books, these 66 books, how do they all come together in one cohesive story? People have proposed many different kinds of solutions to this. Christians standing after the New Testament look back and say, how do we make sense of this? And some people say, well, maybe we just need to kind of downplay the Old Testament because it gets confusing when we go in there. And maybe we want to go to it for, like, morals and maybe good life lessons, but really we just focus on Jesus and his teachings. Some people are even more blatant. They say, well, we just need to get rid of that, and we just need to focus on what Jesus said, and maybe we just cling to that. It's a big question that the church actually has been struggling with since the beginning. But we believe that the church us today stand in this great long line within history of, of how God has been working throughout history and that we stand in continuation with all of God's people. Well, this was a big question for the early church, which was a Jewish church. These, these Jewish people who had been following Jesus and they, and they started this church based on who he is and what they believed about, to be true about him, And yet they kind of struggled. How how Jewish do we have to be? Especially when all of a sudden they they know they're supposed to take this message, this message of the gospel, this good news of who Jesus is to the Gentiles. And these other people who are not Jewish start coming into the church and believing, and so they wrestled with this question. It's the same question people nowadays are still wrestling with. Like, how do we make sense of this, and where do we fit into the story? And it's not new. It happened in the early church. And we'll see as we go throughout the book of Acts, this was a huge question they wrestled with. And then even in the early church after, in the 100s A.D., they wrestled with this question. Because now the church was mainly made up of Gentiles, people not of the Jewish faith. And so they're like, "How, how should we reconcile this? And into this scene came a pretty influential guy named Marcion. And he said, hey, I got got the solution. Let's just forget about the Old Testament. And let's just focus on Jesus and maybe some of the letters of Paul. And he actually started this movement that was condemned because it's not true. Basically setting forth that maybe the New Testament is fundamentally different than the Old Testament. And that Jesus is fundamentally a different God than the God we see in the Old Testament. And so he kind of pushed this big divide between these two things. And we think that's far-fetched. It's not that far-fetched. Because right now, today, there are people who advocate maybe for the Christian message to be successful. We kind of have to unhitch it from the Old Testament a little bit and not focus how it works, how God's story has worked throughout history. But did the early church see it that but well, when we come to the book of Acts, we see very clearly the early church understood that they stood in continuation of God's plan. And that this church, the church of believers, was not somehow different than what God was doing. But this church is God's plan for people to come to know him through Jesus Christ. And we see this, I believe, particularly in this chapter 3 of the book of Acts. We see how they believed. That the church is a continuation of God's plan. So if you have your Bibles, if you would, we open up to the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole chapter uh, 3 of the book of Acts. And don't worry, it's not that long. It's only 26 verses. But remember, let's put this into context of where we have been in the book of Acts Pentecost has come, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, Peter has stood up and he preached this great message, 3,000 people came to know him, just last week we talked about how the early church was operating, they loved each other intensely, they cared for each other, and now we see the church in action, the church actually working, and it starts like this, it says, now Peter and John, two of the disciples of, of Jesus, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man was lame from birth, was being carried whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by his right hand, and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomons. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and I will listen, you will listen to him in whatever he tells you. And there shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from uh, Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What do we see in this chapter 3 of the book of Acts? I think we see that the church is the continuation of God's redemptive plan. We see the early church actually at work. Peter and John, these disciples of the Lord, they're working as a church was supposed to be working. They're going out, and they are in the act of worship, but yet they're working The redemptive plan out. They're preaching the gospel. They're ministering to people. They are continually doing what God has called them to do. We see God's redemptive plan continually to be worked out. Which means that the church is not somehow God's plan B. The church is not somehow, um, uh, you know, just what he's going to do because Israel didn't do what it was supposed to do. The church is God's plan for the gospel to spread across this whole globe. It stands in the line of the people of faith Throughout the Bible, spreading what God has in store for people. The church is a continuation of God's redemptive plan. And this chapter starts out with a miracle. We see it happening. And it's, a, it's this miraculous stage, miraculous miracle that sets the stage, if you will, for Peter's teaching, for what he's about to say about who Jesus is. And just to put yourself in this, this, this miracle that takes place, And I really think you almost see a continuation of Jesus' ministry. Because how Peter and John are acting, I mean, you could almost insert this into one of the Gospels and replace him with Jesus, and you see him at work, and you see this continuation happen. Peter and John, they're getting to the temple at the ninth hour. This is like 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It's right after the evening sacrifice. It's a time of prayer. All the devout Jews would be heading to the temple to spend time in prayer. And we see Peter and John doing the same thing. They weren't partaking in the sacrifice because they knew Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, but they were still in, in, worshiping God as they knew through prayer, coming together with all of God's people here, honoring God in his prayer. And so they're walking up to his temple, and they see this beggar, who, be, beggar who we see later in, in chapter 4, that he, for 40 years he's been lame. He was born lame for 40 years, and so they carry him to this, tape, this uh, gate of the temple on the east side of the temple called the Beautiful Gate. And they laid him there, this gate that's like 75 feet tall. It's covered in brass, and it's supposed to be uh, beautifully worked. And it's this, this really strange juxtaposition between this beautiful entrance into God's house. And yet here lies a beggar asking for alms. And you, it's the scene of Peter and John walking up there, and he, and they look at this beggar. And I love the language of the Scripture where it says they directed their gaze at him. Some translations, they simply say they looked at him. And they asked him to look at them. He looks at them expecting, oh, man, these guys are going to give me some money. It's what I want. But Peter answers, no, silver and gold I do not have, he says, but what I do have I'm going to give you. And then he says, rise, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And then Peter, being Peter, he doesn't just settle for declaring that. He grabs the guy and he pulls him to his feet, saying, You are healed. And the guy stands there, healed. <laughs> I love this language where it says he starts kind of walking and then he's leaping. It's like he almost can't, can't believe it. And, and, and Luke is, is, is a physician, and you see this, and it's so funny because it, it uses language nowhere else used in the Bible about how his feet and his ankles, these words, were were made strong. But just think about this. For 40 years, this guy had laid on his back. And with a single word from Peter, through the power of Jesus Christ, he was healed and he got up and he could walk. No physical therapy was needed. He had the strength to actually take his steps. He never learned how to walk, and yet now he could not just walk. But he started to leap. He started to praise God. This truly was a miracle. And because people knew this guy, because for probably the lifespan of everyone who's coming to that temple, he had been laying there asking for alms. They were amazed. And so they poured into the, the, the um, uh, Solomon's Col- Colonnade, which is the same kind of place where even Jesus taught in the temple. And so they poured around Peter and John, and they were like, how could this be? And it set the stage for them sharing the gospel. Just who was, who is Jesus Christ? We see here this continuation of Jesus' ministry. That we ca- I can't help but see Peter and John working as the church is supposed to be working, and you see them just reflecting what they learned at the feet of Jesus taking care of people and working in his name. We actually see in this a fulfillment of the messi- Messianic promise that Isaiah 53, uh, 35, 6 says, then the lame will leap like deer. That the church is being used by God, being used by the Holy Spirit to fulfill this promise, that Jesus did it to prove who he is, and now Peter and John are doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit to prove that their message comes from God. That where Jesus did miracles and healings based on his own power of who he is, now the apostles do them in his name. That the church is the expansion, the extension of, his, of Jesus' ministry, of God's redemptive plan. That God is empowering the church through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to continue his ministry to the people. One commentator says, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's as he reached down and picked up this guy. And the, and the apostles were aware of this. They, they make it very clear when people are asking, How could this be? They say, Hey, it's not us. It's not from our power. It's not from our piety. But it's because of the name of Jesus and faith in that name of Jesus that people can be healed and actually people can be saved. But when I look at just this first part of chapter three, this miracle, I see implications. For how we should see ministry, or so how we should see how we should take care of people, or how we should see the church should be operating to continue God's redemptive plan. And one of the big implications is, is that idea that they looked at the beggar and they asked the beggar to look at them. That there's power in that. Because you can put yourself in that scene as people were streaming into the temple to pray, how many people would not look at that beggar. How many people turn a blind eye because they don't want to acknowledge who that is sitting there? But Peter and John looked at him. They looked at him and they didn't see a beggar. They didn't see someone who's a nuisance. They didn't even see someone asking money. They didn't have what they saw was a person made in God's image that needed to know who Jesus Christ was. And so they looked at him. It reminds you of all that time of that personal ministry of Jesus Christ when he sat down by the well and he actually looked at the woman at the well as she came out when people didn't come draw water and he knew her and spoke to her as a person. What did she say? She went back and said, this is a guy who knew everything about me. Or maybe it could be caused in mind that time when, when Jesus was ministering and a, and a guy with leprosy came up to Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus say? He says, be clean. But he doesn't just do that. He touches the unclean person, personally interacting with him, showing his love. The guy is clean. And that's what we see in Peter and John, this extension of this personal ministry, looking at someone in need and being moved to action, looking at a person and giving that person what they truly did need, and that is to know who Jesus Christ is. Because the gospel is personal. The gospel is for the individual to respond to it comes from a corporate body as the church moves forward and people individually are brought into God's people. But the gospel is personal and we should, when we think about how we share it, and when we think about how we're called to ministry, we need to be personal as well. That we should take the time to actually see people for who they are and know them. That when we look at someone, we don't just see the mistakes they may have made in life. We don't just see the circumstances they might be might be in right now. We don't just see all these things that can maybe distract us or maybe want to push us away from that person, but we see them as a person, a person that has a story, a person whose story can only make sense and find fulfillment and completion when it comes under in, in, in God's story, that the, this is a person that needs, needs to know who God is and needs to know Jesus Christ who saved them. And so we see these people and we know them personally and it should push us forward to actually look at the people around us it's so easy not to look at people. What do we do when we want to ignore someone? We don't look at them. When the people are standing on the side of the road and you don't want to give them money, what do you do? Eyes straight. I don't see them, right? Because once you make eye contact, it's all downhill. Why? Because then you recognize they're a human being and you have to do something. So it's so easy not to to look at someone, but this calls us, the gospel calls us to actually see people and see them for who they are. I'm a huge, huge believer in personal ministry. Yeah, there's there's great ministry that can happen that get through the, the interweb and through all these things and ministries, there's great stuff that happens. There's great ministry that can happen through more impersonal means, but I believe that when life bumps against life, when you come in contact with someone and you take the time to know them and care for them, then you can share who God is with them. It can be powerful. Because ministry is made to be personal. I cut my teeth on ministry in the youth ministry of Young Life where, where you were reaching out to kids who would never come to church. And they would teach you and they would train you that you'd build these relationships with kids. And they call it winning the right to be heard. That you build a relationship and you win the right to be heard so that through that relationship, then you leverage that as they realize, hey, you care for me for me. And you can share the gospel with them. Well, I think of how many people we know in our life that we've already done the legwork. They know we care. They know who we, uh, they, they know what we believe and they know we're in their life and that we've already won the right in all these people as we care for them, as we bump up into our neighbors and our coworkers and they know we care about them, we've already won the right that now we can share who God is with them, what the gospel is, and they can respond to it. This was not just a personal ministry, which I think is so effective, but this also was a ministry that met someone's need. This guy had a need, and they met it. And Notice, it wasn't the need he thought he needed. He wanted money. That's what he thought he needed. But they went deeper than that. And they and they healed him through the power of Christ, and so he could walk. as was a deeper need than his money, but beyond that, actually, I would say they even met an even deeper need. They went past even the healing of him walking, and they met the need as they he clung to him as Peter spoke the gospel about who Jesus Christ is. That that met his greatest need, humanity's greatest need, that he was a sinner, a stranger from God, and the only one only way back was through Jesus Christ. And so they met that need as well. As told him, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I can give to you. And when we think about ministry and when we think about our lives, guess what? We can do the same thing. I'm not guaranteeing that you can go out and you can grab a guy who's been lame from birth and make him walk. Because I don't believe the miracle is actually the point of this message. The miracle just sets the stage saying, look at the power that is coming through this message and then pay attention to this message. And so what we have is even a bigger power, a more fantastic power, a power that we can speak the gospel to someone and the Holy Spirit can be at work through those words and it can reach in and grab a dead, cold heart and replace it with a heart that beats for God. That we actually have a power given to us by the Holy Spirit where we can actually change someone's life when the gospel is preached and can meet their greatest need and they can come to know who Christ is because in the end the gospel is not about people walking it's about people living with God and we have that same power through the gospel and through the spirit and the end result that we see in this miracle is the praising of God there's this guy who is healed. He's walking. He's he's taking maybe some shuffle steps. And then he's leaping. And his feet hold. He's testing the waters. And what does it say? He's praising God. Do you think he was doing that softly and quietly? Ah, oh, thank God I can walk. No, he's like, oh my goodness. Hey Bob, do you see me? I can walk. It's amazing. I don't think there was anyone named Bob back then, but. He knew these people. His neighbors were wanting to worship and they, uh, to prayer and they saw him. And he was praising God. Thanks be to God, the creator. Maybe he was quoting Psalms and says, this God who knit me into my, in my mother's womb. And I thought he made a mistake. Because I came out not being able to walk. But no, he didn't. For now, his power is displayed for people to see and respond. And so he's praising God. And so we see in Peter and John, and I would argue the rest of the disciples and the rest of the church, this is God's plan being continued out. that The church is the continuation of God's redemptive plan. Because when Peter stands up and speaks, and everyone crowds around, and they're like, how could this be? Where does he go? It's like a repeat of the sermon he just gave at Pentecost. But abbreviated. Where does he go? He roots it for firmly in the God of the Old Testament. He roots it firmly in what they know to be true of God. He says, Hey, your God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he's at work in this through Jesus Christ, who you should know. And so he roots it firmly in God's redemptive plan that has been taking place from the beginning. But there's no question this is a Christian sermon. For he narrows down and he focuses on who Christ is. He claims it's only by the name of Jesus and faith in that name of Jesus that this guy is healed. It's not from themselves. And then when you read his message and what he declares to the people around him, just look at how he refers to Jesus. He says, Jesus, the servant of God. The servant of God, this is the language used of prophets. This is the language used of people who follow God. This is the language used in Isaiah talking about the suffering servant who has come to come and redeem his people. He says, this is the servant of God, the servant of God who you guys gave over to Pilate. Look at him, the one God sent for his people. But he's not just the servant of God. He is the holy and righteous one. He is holy. He is set apart from God. He is holy. He is pure. He is holy. He is without sin. This is a guy who lived perfectly for God, followed his law without mistake. But what we could not do he did. And he is the righteous one. He is right standing before a holy God. He stands before God righteous in his ways. Never walking out of step with what God would have him do. This one, the holy and righteous one. But then he goes further. This is the author of life. We're really the ironic statement, the offer of life, the guy who gives life to all who you killed, but God raised them up. He's now puts, coaches Jesus in this divine language, the guy, the God who gives life. This is the guy, Jesus, the God who brought life and breathes life into all of us. This is Jesus, the guy you gave up to, Pilate. But then he seals his argument again by referring to the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus, because it's before it was the name of the Lord by which we're saved. Now it's like he says, it's the name of Jesus. And faith in his name, which not only healed this person, but can heal you too. Not just of your maybe deformities that you might have gone through life, but with the most heinous deformity, w- there could possibly be a heart that is twisted by sin that keeps you apart from your creator. And he can heal that as well. This guy who comes from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Know him. Because he is the fulfillment, Peter continues, of all of what the Bible says. And he uses three kind of people, two guys like benchmarks, saying, Jesus fulfills all of this. Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament. He says, Moses spoke about him. Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Bible, the ones that almost all of these Jewish people probably memorized as kids. Moses spoke about this guy. This is the prophet that comes after him. And then the rest of the prophets, Samuel, and all the people that came after him, they actually spoke about him, and Jesus fulfills that. Oh, and let's not forget the greatest promise that we as Jews cling to, the promise to Abraham, that he's going to bless our uh, our nation, our people. Jesus fulfills even that Promise, And so it shows how this Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. And that message of the gospel of who Jesus is is given to the church as the church extends it out to people. And so the church is the continuation of God's redemptive plan. And What is that plan? That plan is that people know who God is and experience the blessings he has in store for. For that is what Peter says. If you repent and turn to this Jesus, what is the result? Blessings. God's blessings will be poured out on you. Sin will be blotted out. The Jewish people were well aware of their sin. They were now at a prayer time, right after an evening sacrifice—a sacrifice that was taking place to symbolize their need to be reconciled with their holy God. That their sin was placed upon this—a sin offering—and so they knew they needed something to fix the situation and restore the relationship of God. And now, here Peter says, "Your sins will be blotted out." This language "blotted out." Some translations use "wiped out." Is this language of totally erased? is that you can trace it back into this language of the writing of the time. is written on papyrus, and the, the ink of the time didn't have any acid in it, and so actually wouldn't go into the paper. It just sat on top. And so when it was erased, when it was even flicked off or it was wiped away, there would be no trace of that writing, that it would leave no stain. And so when it says, your sins will be blotted out, it means they're gone. They're eradicated. They're erased. They are no more. What a great promise, a blessing that that God says, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. That you'll stand before me blameless. But that's not just the last blessing. Then we have the, the blessing of refreshing from the Lord. It's not just enough that God wipes the slate clean, but now he does a positive impact that we actually get refreshment from this relationship with God that humanity was designed for this relationship with God and we go on through a life parched and dry and needing and, and knowing something's wrong and yet the promise here now is that we'll have refreshment as we have this new relationship with God that he'll, he'll bring what we need to be satisfied, content, whole. And the third blessing that Peter promises actually is pretty interesting to me. He, the blessing is that Christ, the Christ appointed for them, will return. And he says, he's not here now because he has to be in heaven. But when the restoration of all things happen, this return of Christ, him coming back again, will be a blessing for us. And we think, how could that possibly be? was well, a blessing because now Christ will make all things new. He'll make them how they're supposed to be. That if we stand In Christ, we can wait for His His return, knowing it is a blessing. This is the gospel that we hold out to people. It's The gospel that the early church held out to people. It's actually, I would say, the gospel that the Jewish nation actually held out to each other and uh, the whole world, saying, if you know God, if you turn to Him, these things can be true for you as well. Because the church is a continuation of God's. Redemptive plan. So, what does that mean? Let's look at those blessings and know them for ourselves, but also know that this is what we hold out to anyone we share Jesus Christ with. That we should hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ, how He lived for us, He died for us, and He rose for us. And as we do, if they know it, if they come to grasp it, if they come to accept it, they too will know these blessings that God gives, that sin will be blotted out. It's our greatest need. The need that the man who is a beggar is greater than the ability to walk. He needed to know the truth of who Jesus is. Sin will be blotted out. I have an overactive mind. And sometimes when I'm falling asleep, it's like a little movie kind of plays. Of all the times I've messed up and been an idiot and been just not who I'm supposed to be, I can get down on myself, and I can get kind of anxious because I don't live how I'm supposed to live too often. I don't do what I'm supposed to do. I do things I'm not supposed to do, and I can just beat myself up about it. I can even wallow in my own misery. (laughs) then I need to recall to mind this blessing I have from God. If I believe in Christ, which I do, if I believe that he is my Savior, which I do, if I know him personally, which I do, if I have confessed that I need him to be saved, which I have done and continually do, then I know that my sins have been blotted out, that they're taken care of. I don't need to dwell on them anymore. I don't need to hold them over myself anymore. I don't need to let the enemy whisper them into my ears, making me feel worthless anymore. That I know they're gone. As far as the east is from the west, they're gone. They're wiped clean. They leave no more stain because God has declared it so. That my sins have been wiped, blotted out. Just think what would happen to this community of faith if we held that truth. We don't have to put up any more fronts, facades, that we got it all together. We know we don't. But it doesn't make us love each other less. And it doesn't, And we don't have any more holes over each other. And we shouldn't feel like they, the other people have holes over us. Or we feel less if we mess up. No, because we know it's forgiven. And it means we can be open with one another. That we can run to one another and confess our sins, how we've messed up. And we can receive grace and verbalization of the forgiveness we have in Christ with one another. And we can be real and open. And then that means we can be forgiving to others. Recognizing how stuff might have hurt and stuff might have consequences, but we can be forgiving with one another because we have been forgiven. And we can be a community ruled by grace. If you could see that and know it and experience it, and they could be reminded of how they are forgiven in Christ. But not only that, but we can experience refreshment in God. Sound really narcotic right now because I'm like, not only do I dwell about my my past things, I also have a lot of anxiety and stress, and and worry about things. I'm I can be worn out. I can. Wake up on Monday morning, it's hard to get yourself out of bed, and you're just worn out with life, and you're like, what is going on? You need refreshment. I'm talking about the kind of refreshment of mowing your, your grass on a hot summer Arkansas day where you forgot to take a drink of water beforehand, and you have a big hill in your front yard. I don't know what I'm talking about, but you're pushing your, your, your lawnmower, your little push lawnmower. That was the cheapest one you can find, and the guy was like, are you sure you want this? I'm like, yeah, I want that. It's $100, and so I'm pushing up this, this hill in my front yard, and you're parched, and you need refreshment. And you're like, what is going to happen? My body's shutting down. And the reality is, if we don't have Christ, if we don't have God, that's how we're operating every day. Parched, needing refreshment, not having the relationship we were designed to have, not being fulfilled and satisfied like God made us to be. And this is nothing new from the New Testament. Throughout the whole Bible, it's been speaking about this that we find refreshment. And God, just listen to some of the Psalms. In Psalm 42, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, 1 says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm uh, 143, 6 says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Now, this is a promise, actually the need that the Bible speaks of from the beginning throughout the Bible, that we're made for God and only God can bring us back into that relationship. And now we know how he does it through his promise and through the promise realized in Jesus Christ. And so we know we can find fulfillment, not just fulfillment, but refreshment. That before when we've been anxious about everything and we've been worn out, that we can go to our God and know that he refreshes our soul. And that refreshment is powerful. Because it doesn't mean that our life circumstances change. It doesn't mean the things we're stressed out about, we're taken care of. But we, it means that we can now re-enter those knowing who our God is, knowing his love, knowing his care, knowing that he is moving all of history to conform us to the image of his son, knowing he has a plan awaiting us, knowing all these things, and so we're refreshed because it lets us lift our eyes past what we're going through right now, lift our eyes back to him and know him for who he is. So we look to God for that refreshment. That is what we're holding out to people, that through the gospel they can be refreshed. In God. It's what we need to hold to our hearts in our lives and know this truth. And then the final blessing that we need to keep in our mind and we need to hold out to people is simply this Jesus is coming back. The Christ return, the Christ appointed for you is coming back. The end of history is coming. Is that good news? Or is that bad news? You know, our, we love the, uh, the end of society as we know, it, the end of the world as we know it kind of movies. You know, we, we, people got fascinated with the Mayan calendar back in 2012. That the world's coming to the end. You've made a big movie about it, about the world coming to the end. And so we're fascinated about how that possibly could happen. And we have to ask the question, is this good news or is this bad news? And our society says, well, that looks like bad news. But if we stand in Christ, we look at this and says, oh, that sounds like fantastic news. For darkness will be vanquished once for all. Sin will be gone, done with once and for all. That Jesus will come back as the reigning king and he'll set everything right. That all the wrongs we've had to deal with will be made right. That all the evildoers will actually be made right. We'll get what's coming to them. This is good news for us who stand in Christ. It's good news as we know that God's going to wipe Every tear from us, and there will be nothing left for us to cry about. For everything will be made perfect; everything will be made pure and holy as it's supposed to be in right relationship with God. And this is a blessing that we actually hold out to people. Why? Because it's a blessing when we say there's actually a purpose for history. There's an end towards which we're headed. There is a path that we're going somewhere, which means there's purpose right now, and there's meaning for what awaits us. And this is a blessing we hold out to people and it's a reminder to people that, they, that there's an urgency for them to know who Christ is. For we do not know when that point happens. And so they need to come to know Christ before he returns and for the end of the world as we know it happens. So we hold that out as a reminder to repent, a reminder of the blessings we have in God that if we stand in Christ that is a great blessing. And if you don't We beg you to come to know him. For that's the only place where hope will rest. The church is the continuation of God's redemptive plan. That when we stand up and we proclaim. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we're doing is we're standing up and we're proclaiming the fulfillment of how God has been working throughout ages. We're proclaiming how God has been working to bring people to him. We're proclaiming the truth that God, from the very beginning, has been working throughout history with this great redemptive plan to bring to fruition that all of his people will know the truth and come back to him to love him and be him. So we hold out these blessings with confidence. We hold out these blessings knowing people should respond and will respond through the power of the Spirit. And we know that we stand in a line, a great line of faith, looking back not only on our maybe parents or people we know who have stood in the faith before us, but looking all the way back throughout the Bible and we stand in line with what God has been doing. And we praise him because of it. And we hold out his gospel. The church is a continuation of God's redemptive plan. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for who you are. You're good and you're mighty. You're you're great that your plan can be so, so grand that it's hard sometimes to wrap our minds around it. Your plan could be so mysterious at points that we wonder how it. It's going to work, but you've revealed that mystery to us. And so I pray for all of us here that we can grab hold of who Jesus is and know the blessings that we have through him. And not just that, but as we comfort ourselves and we gain confidence through those blessings, that we can turn around and we can extend those same blessings, the possibilities of those same blessings to everyone around us, that they can know who you are respond to what you've done through Jesus Christ and be yours. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. If you guys would uh, join us and stand and continue to worship.